let me ask some. Have you ever been in a situation where you just didn't get it? Everyone else thought you should have gotten it, but somehow you didn't get it. You know, it's an interesting thing. My wife will talk about the importance of a clean house. She loves a clean house. And we'll talk about that because sometimes, you know, we get busy and things going. It's like, whoa, we need to stop. Let's just pick things up. Let's do it. Because you want your house to be clean. You want your house to be warm. You want your house to be inviting for people. And she will talk about this. And isn't that important, Sheridan? I go, absolutely. In fact, I love it that way. And I want it to do that way. And as she's talking, she's kind of looking down. And I notice what she's looking at are the two garbage bags that I should have taken out this morning, but I was in a hurry leaving the, the apartment. So they stayed there. And she can talk about, isn't it wonderful to have a, a, a clean house? I go, absolutely. And I'm agreeing and agreeing until I see her look at the garbage bags. And then it dawns on me, she wants me to be involved in what she's talking about. She's not looking for me to agree with it or to say, in principle, I am beside you. She actually wants me to do something. And so, guess what? I do something. I pick it up and take it out. But it's amazing. The whole time as we're talking, I'm just feeling like I'm on the team. You know? Let's keep the house clean. Yeah, let's make it inviting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until all of a sudden I realize, whoop, it takes a little more of a commitment. It takes an involvement and engagement. And now the house is nice and clean for you guys to come over. All right? You know, this happened to Simon Peter, and I want us to look at this in, in Matthew the 6th chapter. I'm sorry, Matthew 16. But it was a little more serious than just keeping a house clean or taking garbage out. Jesus has come to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, you know, guys, uh, let's take a little poll here. Who do people say that I am? And they answer, well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets, some say, you know, all these. And they're giving good answers. And so Jesus follows up with another question. He goes, but what about you? You who have followed me, you who have seen me, you who gave up everything to become my disciples, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, first one, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. For this was revealed to you not by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Picture the scene here. Jesus gathered this small group, this band in order to teach them so that they would teach others. 
And so he found out what the popular opinion was saying about himself, but now the real issue is not what everyone is saying. The real issue is what you individually say. Who do you say I am? Peter's the first one. He comes up. He is now the valedictorian of the apostolic class. This is it. You're the Christ, the Son of God. That is the answer that Jesus wanted them to take hold of. Peter's the first one to get it. And he says, Peter, this truth, I'm going to build my church on this truth. That I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm not just a religious teacher. I'm not just here how to be a life coach. I'm not just here to talk about a better of many ways. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is a high point. It is amazing. And Peter right now has a spotlight on him. He is the ace student. And so let's pick up right after this. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now stop there for a second. Catch the flow, what's going on here. This is an exciting moment. Peter going... You're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus goes, good answer, Peter, isn't it great? And then he starts talking about, now, I'm going to go and suffer and be crucified and die. So, wow, where did that come from? What are you talking about? And so in verse 22, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. How in the world do you go from being an A student to all of a sudden being referred to, get behind me, Satan. How does that happen? You know, when we back up and we see the whole, you know, scope of the Gospels, we understand how deeply Jesus loved Peter. We understand how much Peter loved Jesus. Even though he will go on and deny him, he will come back and be forgiven. So, all of a sudden, this is such an intense and sharp rebuke. It's such a, 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 a kind of divergence from the way things were going. What happened here? And notice what Jesus says. You know, there's a time when doing the good thing can be the wrong thing. Now stop and think about it. Whenever there's a fire, the good thing is throw water on the fire. But if the fire's a grease fire, is that a good thing? No. Why? Because now all of a sudden it spreads and goes everywhere, right? So in that instance, the good thing is not a good thing. In this instance, the good thing is Peter loves Jesus. Peter cares about Jesus. Peter sees Jesus as the hope of mankind. But the bad thing is Peter's trying to prevent him from going the path that's going to make him the hope of all mankind. 
Peter's trying to stand in the way. He's letting sentimentality and a worldly mindset, you're my friend, nothing bad should happen to you, but Jesus had to let him know, this is a path I have to tread in order to be the hope, in order to offer forgiveness for all mankind. I have to go the way of suffering, rejection, death, and subsequently resurrection. If that doesn't happen, I'm no longer the Christ. I'm no longer the anointed one, the Messiah. So Peter, don't stop me. Don't tempt me out of sentimentality to not do what I came into the world to do. You see, Peter had his mind on things of the world, not on things of God. And again, we commend him for being a friend. We commend him for his love. But at this time, the good thing became a bad thing. And what's happened for 2,000 years since, whenever people have had the things of the world in mind rather than things of God and come in the name of Christ, that is when atrocities have been performed in the name of Christ. Jesus knew, Peter, you've got to get this. Because if your bottom line is going to be yourself and how you think about things and you're not going to have in mind the things of God, then you will perpetrate some of the worst things in my name. And that's what's happened. One of the saddest things that, that I run across is talking to somebody whose experience with Christianity has been abysmal. And they would share. It could be through sexual abuse or betrayal or, or swindling. You know, this was a good Christian businessman that took me for everything. This was a person, you know, that was a ministry leader that was guilty of abuse. This was, I mean, you think about that and you think about how God thinks about that. That is not of God. That is not the way God thinks. And yet whenever we get in mind the ways, the mind of men, all of a sudden we'll do all sorts of different things, even in the name of Christ. So, what we think is important. We're talking about loving God with all of our mind. And the thing we don't want to do is fall into a trap to where we're not quite getting it. We're doing religious things, we're coming Sundays, we're, you know, uh, maybe we read our Bible or are, pray, or are praying, but when push comes to shove, our mind is really in the world. We think, how can this benefit me? This will make my life better. But there's no other way of thinking. There's no sense of, what does God want? There's no sense of, I belong to God. It's just me. It's my frame of reference. And what happens is we all end up with a frame of reference on how we make decisions, right? We do that. The way you live your life, there's a frame of reference you appeal to. Think about it, you know. Uh, Women, you know, maybe you, your frame of reference is, you know, I want to take care of my health. So the way you make decisions is being healthy. And then all of a sudden you have a baby. Now it used to be important for you to get sleep, right? I need to have eight hours, nine hours sleep. I'm taking care of myself. That's my frame of reference. I've got to do that. I've got to do that. All of a sudden you have a baby. Now, the frame of reference shifts a little bit. Not that you're going to trash your health, but the frame of reference is, what does my baby need? What does my baby need? 
And now you're getting up every couple of hours, getting awful sleep, if any at all. But why are you doing that? That's where your mind is. In the frame of reference for making a decision is, what does my baby need? Not, what do I need? I need a good eight to nine hours uninterrupted. Guess what? Little Tyke's not going to put up with that, is he? That little thing is as rude as he can be, right? Coming out, waking you up every couple hours to feed. And you're sitting there going, oh, I'm dead. But you know what? No, it's your frame of reference. It's where your mind is. And the way you're, you're interpreting and making decisions is, what is the need of my child? On a bigger scale, that's how we live our lives. We all have frames of reference on how we make decisions. And so, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When it comes to loving God with all of our mind, it is so important. Because if we don't do that, we end up making the same mistake Peter did. We'll be religious, but there's something sabotaging us the whole time. Our frame of reference is off. It's all about the world, or us, and not about God. So how do we do this? We have to set our minds. And that's what I just want you to think about today. Your mind, my mind, won't just naturally go to where God wants it to go. That comes because we decide to do that. We set our mind. That's how the Bible terms it. Set your mind. Have you ever, you know, if you've ever built anything, you set it up. You know, pour some concrete. Let me set the concrete. Let me set this. It's talking about you put it in position. And that's what we have to do with our minds. If we don't do that, it's just not naturally going to go to God. Now, why is that? Because we're fallen. Because sin, you know, we've lived lives and sin has become habitual, so it's normal. And also, we're surrounded by a culture that keeps wanting us to think the ways of the world. And I'm not faulting them for that. That's the way they are. That's the way we are. So if I'm going to love God with all of my mind, I have to set my mind to do that. It won't just get there without me setting it. I want us to look at just a couple of things today and let us think about it for the rest of the week. Let's look over at Romans, the 8th chapter. Romans 8. Setting our mind. How do I do that? I really want to love God with all my mind. I have to set it. So what does that mean? Romans 8. And in verse 5, Paul is talking here about the salvation that comes to us through Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Talks about what God has done through the cross that we were incapable of doing because we didn't have the power to do it. And so the cross, the, the law of God, which is good, the law is good, but to us it was only accusative because we'd already messed up. So Paul is talking about the grace, the forgiveness that comes through Christ. And notice what he says in verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. 
The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. If I'm going to set my mind and have the mind, things of God in mind, I've got to set my mind on what the Spirit desires. What happened to Peter in Matthew 16? He wasn't setting his mind on what the Spirit desires. He had his mind set on what he desires. He desired Jesus to be okay. He desired to have his friend with him. He desired maybe even a life that wouldn't include challenges, suffering, persecution, any of that. Let me have it this way. But right here Paul says to set our mind. Where, okay, I'll set my mind. What does that mean? I set it on what the Spirit desires. Now what does that mean? You've got to find out what does the Spirit desire and what do I desire? I, uh, I was sharing with you a couple of weeks ago about right before Deb's birthday and how I decided what I was, you know, going to do for her birthday is I was going to find out what she wanted. And guess what? That's exactly what I did. To celebrate her birthday, I want to know, Deb, what do you desire to do? What do you desire? I didn't sit there and think, you know, here's what I want to do. I'm going to go take her and uh, we're going to go watch this race. All right? And I'm going to tell her, this is my gift to you. And I'm going to do it with a smile. And I'll even give her some food. I mean, you know, what a great guy. I didn't do that. What I said is, what would you like to do? What is it? Now, why did I do that? Because it's her birthday, I want to please her. So it's all important to me, what do you want? It would have been wrong for me to say, this is what we're going to do, and at least you ought to be grateful that I'm doing something. Yeah, yeah. There have been times I've thought to God, well, man, at least I'm going to church. You ought to be grateful. I did this. I gave my contribution. You ought to be grateful. I did a hope thing. I did this. I did that. You know what? All of that is good. But the real issue is, am I approaching life saying this? I want to set my mind. What does the Spirit desire? That's what I want to set my mind on. That's how I want to make decisions in my life. That's my frame of reference. What does he desire? I break life up into three broad categories, and you can, you know, figure out the smaller files in each of these categories. But when it comes to life, it's about relationship. Okay? We're creating the image of God. We're built for relationship with God and with each other. Okay? So I kind of divide life up into three big categories. Relationship to God, relationship to God's people, and relationship to those outside of Christ. And where each of those people are, whoever, however they fall in that, that determines how I relate to them. But what I do in each of those categories is I seek what is it the Spirit desires. In my relationship to God, what, what does the Spirit desire for me? How does he want me to approach the Word of God? How does he want me to pray? How does he want me to 
think about my heart and my motives. What, what does he want? I know what I want. I want to just, you know, let me just read a verse or something. Let me get on and get busy with life. I know that. Is that what the Spirit wants? Is that what I'm seeking? Now, I don't have all the answers for what the Spirit wants, but I know where the answers are. And how much are we applying that? In my relationship to God, what is it that he wants? What about my relationship to God's people, those that are also Christians? What does he want there? What is his true desire? Is it desire to love, to be unified, to work together? Is that his desire or is it not? Is it desire to be just in a close proximity or is there supposed to be a connection that's happening, a fellowship? You know what? Life is not fair and I know a lot of things happen and then we hurt each other's feelings and we do things to each other. And I wish we didn't. I wish we could all walk on water. That way the toll hikes wouldn't affect any of us, right? We just stroll across the water and not have to pay tolls. That'd be great. Economic blessing. But that's not true. We don't walk on water. We still say the wrong thing at the wrong time. We still can be oblivious to the pain in each other's lives. And maybe we're up to our eyeballs in so many things going on. It isn't. And so people get hurt. But what does the Spirit want? Does He want us to say, oh well, I quit. Or does He want us to say, God, help me figure that out. Somehow, I'm supposed to love you guys the way Christ loves me. Because that's supposed to be a statement to those who aren't Christians. Wow, there's a God in heaven. Wow, that's different. That's what Jesus' disciples are like. It's interesting, I was just talking to uh, a friend of mine, Stuart, here, just about one of the first things I noticed when I walked into a church in our fellowship 40-some years ago was the diversity. And it wasn't just diverse, where you have the white people sitting here, black people sitting here, Latin people sitting here, and those who are mixture trying to figure out where in the world to sit, alright? It wasn't like that at all. This is 1974. Racial tensions are still tight down there in Florida. I walked in, people were loving each other. It wasn't just a few blacks among a vast sea of whites or a couple of whites among a vast sea of whites. It was just everyone, all mixed. And they were engaged. And the minute the preacher said amen and all that, they hung out with each other. And they were together. And you know what? That's the first time it opened my eyes that, well, maybe there's something to what Jesus said. <laughs> it was that. Because, see, that's what Jesus said was going to happen. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. What is it that the Spirit desires? in our relationships with each other as his church. What is it? Ask ourselves that question. Let that be the frame of reference. That's how you can love God with all your mind. Set your mind there. And what is it that the Spirit desires in our relationship with those who are not Christians on the outside? He doesn't desire us to be self-righteous. We have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. Wow, look, I became a Christian. I've cleaned up my life. You've received a gift. 
You've been blessed by His grace. You get to live differently. Anyone can do that. By God's grace and His mercy. Do we care enough to respect people, to let people know that they are created in the image of God? All people. Are we there to be a blessing to their lives, to help them in times of need? Are we there to make a difference? And I want God to get the glory, but I don't want to be somehow aloof and removed from people. It's all about relationship. But I've got to set my mind on what does the Spirit desire as far as me relating to people that are not Christians. He desires me to serve them, to be there for them, to care about them, to respect them, to be someone that can be depended on. If I don't set my mind on that, you know what? I'm just going to drift off into my own realm and not really care. Set your mind on what the Spirit desires. The other passage, look over there, Colossians 3. We'll close out here. Colossians 3. Verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Look at that in verse 2. Set your minds on things above. In Romans 8, set my mind on what the Spirit desires. Colossians 3, set my mind on things above. When Jesus came into the world, what did he say? He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And throughout his message, the first thing he always preached about was the kingdom of God. You know, kingdom's not a word we use a whole lot. I guess if we lived in Great Britain or other places that have a monarchy, it'd be a little more familiar to our language. We don't use king, queen, you know, none of the royal designations. But this is a vital part. This was the essence of Jesus' message. He came into the world to let people know it's not business as usual anymore. He has come to announce the kingdom of God is here. Now, it's not a geographical kingdom. It's not just where you can set up little border posts. What is it? The kingdom of God is wherever people submit to the rule and reign of God. And he came to bring a whole new way. And so everyone that followed him, they submitted. They were part of the kingdom, submitted to the rule and the reign of God. One day the kingdom will come and it's a complete revelation at the end of time. But here's the thing. If I'm going to set my mind on things above, what that means is I'm going to think the way of kingdom and the way of Christ's kingdom. This is going to talk about my values right here. Set my mind. What's, in my, when I make a decision, where does that come from? I make a kingdom decision. Something that comes from the rule and reign of God. I like what William Barclay uh, said about this. He described this as when you set 
giving above getting, forgiveness above revenge, and serving above ruling. That's totally backwards than the world offers, isn't it? In the world, it's about what can I get? In the world, it's about this person hurt me, I have a right to resent them. In the world, it's about domination. I've got to excel, not serve. All right? But a kingdom-minded person, a person that set their minds on things above, not of this earth, they are looking, okay, how can I serve people? How can I do it? Giving is better than getting. I become like Christ in that. I give my time, my energy, my focus, my resources. And forgiveness is so much better than revenge. Revenge eats a person's soul away, inside out. Forgiveness sets them free to become like God. None of that just happens. It happens because we set our minds on things above. We set our minds saying, I am a child of the kingdom. Therefore, this is how I think. Therefore, this is my value system. Therefore, this is the way I'm going to be. I want us to think about this. The singers can come forward right now. We're going to close out here in a song. But as we're thinking about this, loving God with all of our mind, let's not make the same mistake Peter did and think, you know what, I'll end up being kind of religious and have a spiritual flavoring to my life, but my mind's going to be anchored somewhere. Let's think, you know what, God wants me to love him with all of my mind, therefore, here's what I'm going to do, I will set my mind. It won't just kind of ease up there. It needs to be set. But where am I going to set it? I'm going to set it on what the Spirit desires. And I'm going to set it on things above. I'm going to be a kingdom-minded person. And as we do that, what's going to be the result? We're going to have the things of God in mind. And continue to bring honor and glory to his name.